Hello, listeners. My name is Joe Lustig, and this is the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. One of the most important and vexing challenges facing healthcare policymakers in the United States today is the price of prescription drugs. Drug prices in this country are much higher than in other peer countries. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, drug prices in the U.S. are about two and a half times as high as in similar high-income countries. High drug costs are obviously a problem for American households, especially the elderly and people with complex medical conditions who rely on expensive drugs. But it's also a problem for the federal budget, since prescription drugs account for a significant portion of spending in Medicare and Medicaid. Congress took steps to address high drug prices in the Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed into law by President Biden in August of 2022. To talk about the history of drug pricing policy in the U.S., the provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act, and what else Congress might do to tackle the high price of drugs moving forward, I've invited Dr. Richard Frank onto the podcast. Dr. Frank was a distinguished health economist and an expert on drug pricing issues. I can think of no one better than Dr. Frank to talk us through these complex issues. All right, Dr. Frank, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon to talk about drug pricing. To get started, um, why don't you just introduce yourself, who you are, uh, your work, and and your interest in drug pricing. My name is Richard Frank, and I'm a health economist. Uh, I am a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and uh, direct the uh, Schaefer Initiative on Health Policy there. And I've been a health economist in in academia, in government, and in the nonprofit sector for a long time. I spent close to five years in the Obama administration in uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, and I've worked on drug pricing issues for you know over thirty years. Great, awesome. That's thank you so much. <laughs> so, I wanted to see if we can start by uh, giving folks a brief history. So. Many people may not know that Medicare has not always covered drug pricing. So, so Medicare originally passed in 1965 as part of uh, President Johnson's Great Society. And initially, it, it covers hospital services, it covers physician services, but it doesn't cover drug pricing. So I was hoping you could just walk us through what were the considerations that went into that? Why did Medicare initially not cover drug pricing? Well, Medicare was built off of a platform that was essentially the Blue Cross Blue Shield standard option at the time. And at that time, drugs were a really tiny part of what we spent money on in healthcare. And so people didn't view it as the type of serious financial risk that it is today. And so uh, the standard Blue Cross plan didn't cover it. Lots of insurance plans didn't cover uh, prescription drugs. And so Medicare sort of followed suit and didn't. That's interesting. So it was it was sort of not even thought of as a significant health expense for most people. So as a result, the legislators and the members of Congress and the interest groups that were negotiating this didn't didn't even really think to cover drug pricing. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it's important to recognize two other points related to this. One is that 
inpatient drugs were covered as part of the hospital bill, and also physician-administered drugs such as chemotherapy for cancer were covered under Medicare Part B. And so it was really the outpatient, you know, the pills that we go to the drugstore to get uh, that were uncovered. And so uh, those at that time were a much smaller part of our healthcare budget uh, than they are now. That makes a whole lot of sense. So drugs you get in the hospital, drugs a doctor gives to you at their office were covered. Drugs you go to the pharmacy counter to get uh, just weren't a significant enough part of the healthcare expenditures at the time to be considered covered. That makes sense. Right. Yes. So so fast forward to, to 2003 and, and Medicare does come around to adding or, or Congress comes around to adding a, a prescription drug benefit to Medicare. But it was it was a little bit different than 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 traditional Medicare. So you know, most Medicare, uh, you know, for physician services, for doctors, Medicare is the direct insurer. Uh, you know, people who have Medicare for their health insurance, they go to the doctor and Medicare pays the doctor. It's just covered that way. Medicare prescription drug benefit wasn't designed that way. It was more of a public-private partnership. Could you explain sort of how that program was designed and why? So the uh, Medicare Modernization Act was uh, sort of an important policy initiative uh, from the Bush administration. uh, And that was in 2003. And the motivation was one to sort of cover drugs, to to recognize that they were now a significant part of the uh, healthcare spending uh, equation. And the the idea there was to use market forces uh, to try to control uh, the cost of the benefit, among other things. And in a sense, there are sort of two sides of the market forces here. Uh, on one hand, they uh, created a market uh, in how drugs get distributed and prescribed, but they insulated the pricing mechanism from uh, the usual types of administrative prices that you see in Medicare, such as those that we use with hospitals and physicians and Uh, some durable medical equipment. And there was a clause in the Medicare Modernization Act uh, that prohibited Medicare from directly negotiating the prices of prescription drugs covered under the Part D benefit, which was the outpatient prescription drug benefit. And so it was, uh, that was motivated out of a concern that the, presence of price controls uh, would inhibit investment in research and development of new drug products. And that was a a policy that was uh, aggressively supported by the pharmaceutical industry. And it was one where many consumer groups and insurers uh, were somewhat uncomfortable with. And so, so just to, to draw out the, the pricing mechanism point a little bit, because that's really important. So with Medicare Parts A and B, hospital and physician insurance, those prices are set sort of just, just by the government, right? The government puts out a, a price schedule every year that determines how much uh, physicians are paid or how much hospitals are paid. 
for, for each particular service for, you know, go down the list of any service you could get at a hospital or a physician. Here's the price Medicare is going to pay. Is that, is that right? Yeah. That's a simplified, but mostly accurate version. Right. Okay, great. And, but so for drugs, it's, it's, it's not that the, the, they, what no. they did is they sort of set up a little, a private market um, and let the market determine the price rather than having the government dictate or even negotiate what those prices are. Well, they, they set up uh, private purchasers uh, known as prescription drug plans that were like specialty insurance plans. So if you were a Medicare beneficiary, you could sign up for one of these plans if you wanted prescription drug coverage, and they would negotiate with the industry, much like pharmaceutical benefit managers do broadly in the in a uh, marketplace. And they would, through uh, the design of the benefit, through negotiation, through uh, the use of uh, drug formularies, try to get price concessions from manufacturers. And uh, that works pretty well when there's a lot of competition for a drug, uh, because you can, by encouraging uh, folks to buy the a lower price version, you can get price concessions by playing the uh, manufacturers against one another. However, when there isn't much competition, that becomes much more difficult. And these uh, prescription drug plans are in a much weaker bargaining position. And in those cases, what you see is uh, a much higher prices. So in other words, if there's a particular drug that doesn't have any good substitutes, then the fact that there's competition among prescription drug plans doesn't really help you bring down prices because ultimately the manufacturer has all the leverage. They can just say, take our price or, or we're not going to put our drug in your plan. And so the mechanism to use market forces to bring down the price doesn't really work. Yeah. In fact, it's a, it's a little worse than that because uh, by having many prescription drug plans, what you do is you fragment the market. So you have lots of smaller plans negotiating with uh, big plans. And something we all learned in the schoolyard is when a big guy fights with a little guy, the big guy usually wins. Right. That makes sense. Uh, so, you know, I think there are various smaller scale efforts to, to combat some of these problems in the, in the decades following the Medicare Modernization Act, but really the first major, major drug pricing legislation um, was passed last year, and that was the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which had a lot of other unrelated measures, but but one core section of, of that bill was a, a series of reforms intended to bring down drug prices and, and rectify some of the problems created uh, by the way the Medicare Part D was originally designed. Um, so, I know you you have looked very closely at, at this, and I want to sort of have you walk through some of the major provisions and, and explain them for the audience. So the the first major provision, something that, that we've already talked about a little bit, was was the bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, allows Medicare to ne directly negotiate drug prices with manufacturers, but only for a pretty small set of drugs. So do you want to walk through those provisions? Sure. The first part is to um, allow the government to uh, no longer be bound by what is known as the non-interference clause of the um, Medicare Modernization Act. And what that does is it uh, says that the government will be permitted initially to 
negotiate the prices on 10 drugs that are uh, high spending drugs in terms of the claims they make on the Medicare program that have been in the market for nine years if they were uh, a small molecule drug and uh, 13 years if they're biologic drugs. And they- I'll just, I'll just pause you there real quick. What is yeah. you know, the difference between a small molecule drug and a biologic drug? A small molecule drug are the uh, drugs that are typically what we've lived with for a long time, which are their chemicals that are easily replicated, um, you know, that you can sort of make in a laboratory that do not involve like human cells or anything like that. Biologics, which are more like vaccines, have like living material there and work on the body differently and are much more, are uh, very often large molecules that are actually quite complicated and therefore very difficult to exactly rep replicate or reproduce. And so uh, the Inflation Reduction Act allows the government to negotiate for those uh, drugs that are in those types of drugs that are in Part D, which again are the outpatient prescription drugs. And the government can only do so uh, if they meet those criteria. And the reason that those criteria are there are, in a sense, because uh, they're trying to be sensitive to those innovation incentives, which is the logic is if you've been on the market for nine years and you've been sell selling you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of product every year, after nine years, you've probably made your uh, money back. And, uh, but in addition to that, in the process negotiation, the government is supposed to take into account things like uh, whether, in fact, these drugs have broken even, you know, covered their uh, development costs, uh, how effective those drugs are compared to everything else in the market that treats the same illnesses and things like that. And so, again, it's a fairly cautious approach uh, to entering into negotiation. And then there's a process that you know, we'll begin around two years from now, or less than two years from now. Great. So, and and you mentioned that, that it's 10 drugs. And so, you know, some people might might think that doesn't sound like a whole lot. And I, I know that there are, I think there are more added every year for a few years. I think it adds up to maybe 35 drugs, but still that, that sort of seems like a small number. So can you they keep, they keep accumulating. Right. 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 So, you know, you know, if you get 15, it's 15 the next year and 20 the year after and so on. And then it, it continues. So, yeah, again, it's a uh, um, it's a cautious approach. But, you know, in a sense, you're setting up this whole new program. And um, you're setting up a program to do some very complicated work. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you've got to sort of build this ship and then you've got to learn how to sail it. And uh, so uh, starting off modestly and ramping up is a very sensible thing. Now, if you look at countries in Europe that have been doing this for years, many of the nations like Germany, you know, they only 
uh, negotiate over 10 to 20 drugs a year anyway. You know, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little less, but it's not like 2,000 drugs are being negotiated every year. It's a very sort of uh, specific, not manageable number, just because these are complicated um, products, they matter a lot to human beings, and you want to be careful about you know, how you go about uh, navigating those waters. So the idea is to sort of uh, incorporate, uh, not, not quite, a pilot program is the wrong term, but to start slowly, make sure you can sort of develop the process you know, make sure that, uh, you know, Medicare and, and uh, the government develop an expertise in how to do this and, and scale it up over time. Yes. And, you know, to, it's not that difficult to poo-poo 10 drugs, but when they're selling, you know, one to four billion dollars a year of product to Medicare alone, you know, 10 drugs can wind up being quite a bit of money. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so that's negotiation, which I think is one of the one of the provisions of the, of the law that got the most attention. There's another provision um, that would would require manufacturers, pharmaceutical manufacturers, to pay rebates if the price of a drug rises faster than inflation. So, can you talk a little bit about that provision and the thinking uh, that went into it? Sure. That um, you know, one of the things that has been clear is that uh, you know, over the last five or ten years. We've had very low inflation rate until just this past year. You know, we're talking like 2% a year, and you've been seeing uh, brand name prescription drug prices going up at, you know, 6 7% a year. And so clearly, uh, those price increases are not because the costs of doing business are going up. It's for other reasons. And the uh, concern was... Uh, and this was initially a bipartisan concern uh, that the taxpayers were not getting a good deal going forward. And so what the um, Inflation Reduction Act does is it says that if you are raising your prices faster than the consumer price index set at a base of 2021, you will have to rebate to the government the difference between what you would have charged uh, times the number of sell relative to what you actually did. So you you take what you actually did charge, what you would have charged had you just stayed with inflation, you take that difference, you multiply it by the number of pills you sold, if you will, and then that difference is the size of the rebate. And if the government receives that rebate, is the idea that the government passes that rebate on to the, the consumers of the drug or or is that not? Or that's uh, just something that goes in the government's general revenues? And Well, it, it provisions in there that limit sort of, for example, uh, in a third provision that changes the um, design of the uh, prescription drug benefit, uh, it protects and helps uh, pay for that. Got it. And, and so to some extent, it's internally consistent that way. You know, you have to remember that this bill, I mean, this part of the bill, the uh, uh, those two provisions uh, are saving on the order of $150 billion. 
Right, right. So we, we, you know, I think a lot of people think about uh, drug pricing policy as sort of intended to save consumers out of pocket costs, which, which it which it does. But also, this is saving the federal government a tremendous amount of money because Medicare itself pays for so much, uh, so many prescription drugs for seniors, and by reducing those prices, in addition to reducing seniors out of pocket costs, it, it also saves the federal government a lot of money, which can then be used to fund other. Yeah. Well, I I prefer to think about it as saving the taxpayers money, because in fact, uh, and so it does save the taxpayers money and, um, you know, it contributes to deficit reduction, et cetera, which is what the Congressional Budget Office pointed out in making their estimates. Great. So you you started to mention the the Part D redesign, and that's right. the next thing I wanted to get into. So one of the other major provisions is it um, it establishes a out of pocket cap, an annual out of pocket cap of I believe two thousand uh, dollars in in Medicare Part D. So a beneficiary wouldn't have to pay more than two thousand dollars out of pocket in a given year for prescription drugs, um, and and it makes some other changes to the design. Uh, so do you want do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, you know, in a sense, what you've pointed out is a three-legged stool. There's the negotiation, there's the inflation rebate, and then there's the Part D redesign. And the redesign is a thing that doubles down on saving consumers out-of-pocket expenses. So the first thing, as you note, it does is it caps uh, the total out-of-pocket spending on prescription drugs. And so what that does is it saves a, a relatively small number, well, uh, well a, a large number, but a relatively small portion of Medicare beneficiaries, a lot of money. So if you have a very important chronic condition uh, that requires you to take, uh, you know, drugs that are going to cost you fifty dollars to $100,000 a year, up until this law passed, even when you hit the so-called catastrophic benefit, you were still paying 5% out, out of pocket. Right. And it turns out 5% of a large number is still a pretty large number for consumers. And so, uh, and it was uncapped. And so uh, the $2,000 limit protects people who are relatively uh, sicker from really uh, catastrophic costs. And that that was the first important piece. Second is that the uh, benefit redesign increased the uh, number of people eligible for a low-income subsidy. So it moved up the income requirement that qualifies you for a low-income subsidy. And so again, what you're doing is you're making uh, drug coverage more affordable to people. Uh, and again, that's another way to lower the costs associated with prescription drugs to consumers, to, to like real people. And then the third piece was it capped the um, price of insulin uh, at $35 per month. And so, uh, you know, once again, uh, what you have is that the negotiation piece looks at the total price, as does the inflation reduction piece, 
which has benefits, as you noted, to consumers. But then the benefit redesign really goes right after giving consumers more financial protection against the cost of pres- prescription drugs. Got it. So the, the first two legs of the stool, as you put it, are focused on sort of saving the taxpayer money. And the third part of the stool sort of uses some of that taxpayer savings to make the, the Medicare Part D prescription drug benefit more generous um, in, in a lot of ways for, for the folks who are using or are spending. Yes. But, you know, uh, consumers benefit from uh, from the first two as well. And and because uh, consumers pay uh, a portion of benefits out of pocket. And again, they uh, they often pay a deductible before they get there. And so all of this affects both of the first two legs of the stool affect those consumer prices as well. Right. right. That makes sense. So I want to come back to insulin. Um, but before I do, just to sort of to sort of conceptualize a little bit the point you made about the out-of-pocket max. I think, you know, most people who have health insurance on, will understand that there are sort of these phases. So there's your deductible, which until you hit your deductible, you're responsible for all of, of the expenditures uh, that you incur. Then above your deductible, usually there's some kind of copay or co-insurance amount. Uh, where you're paying a portion and the insurer is paying a portion, and then you hit your out-of-pocket max. And once you hit that, your insurer is covering everything. So that's sort of normal. Medicare Part D is a, a little bit more complicated than that because um, there, you know, there are these there are these sort of different. And I can I can put a diagram in the show notes so people can look at it because this gets really complicated. But the the sort of crux of it is that right now. Medicare Part D does not have this out-of-pocket cap. It has this catastrophic coverage phase where consumers are only paying 5%. But as you pointed out, um, if you're someone who has a lot of really expensive drugs uh, that you require, 5% of a lot of money is still a lot of money. And so this, this protects those folks you know, who, who, who don't have that protection from an out-of-pocket maximum. Yep. Correct. Great. Okay. So let's, let's go back to insulin briefly, because I thought it was interesting that you know, insulin is one drug and it, it's sort of the only one that is singled out in the bill completely. Uh, insulin gets a $35 out-of-pocket cap. Um, there's no other single drug that's that's treated that way. So, and, and insulin also, you, you hear congressmen talk about it a lot. You hear policymakers talk about the price of insulin a lot. What is it about insulin that gives it this singular focus? Why are policymakers so interested specifically in insulin? Why why does it um, get singled out in the bill? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, the first, in a way, it's kind of a poster child for some of the dysfunctions of the prescription drug market. So that's one thing. Second thing is there are a lot of people with diabetes who are insulin dependent in the Medicare program and that number seems to be growing. So a lot of people involved. And um, insulin has been around forever. I mean, you know, some of the, there are some new products, but there have been insulins that have been around for a long time. And uh, when I talk about sort of the dysfunction, that is partially reflected in what happens. So if you look at what the government pays for insulin, it's actually, you know, it's not wildly expensive in many cases. 
And that's because there's a lot of competition. There are multiple products. They operate in slightly different ways. And the government gets back, you know, through the um, prescription drug plans, uh, they negotiate pretty good deals with manufacturers. And so uh, that comes in the form of rebates to the prescription drug plans and to the government. However, consumers pay on the basis of a list price, which is completely different from the net price, which is the list price minus the rebate. And so you have consumers paying off of a base of a much higher price than the actual transaction with either the prescription drug plan or the government. And, you know, the only one not getting a good deal up to this point on insulins were consumers, uh, which, you know, represents that dysfunction that I was talking about. And it was in one of the places where it was most extreme was in the insulin market. Got it. So given that there's a lot of people with insulin that, you know, it's disproportionately a problem of old age, and uh, there's this um, dysfunction, uh, it got the attention of Congress, as it should. And so what they did is they said, well, look, the problem here is not that there aren't mechanisms either through the new negotiations or through the existing um, prescription drug plan approach to fix this problem for the government side of the market, but there's a big problem on the consumer side. So they decide to go after it directly and just say, look, no more payments above $35. It's not going to be a percentage off of a list price anymore. It's just this number and that's it. Got it. And that, tremendous, that tremendously changes the affordability. Okay. That makes a whole lot of sense. I appreciate that, that explanation. So I wanted to, to quickly talk about you've, done a really great job of walking us through through what's in the bill. I wanted to, to just briefly talk about some of the, the, the critiques of the bill. So I've, I've sort of heard three major critiques, and I want to just have you, and a couple of them we've touched on already, but I want to have you respond to those. Let us know what you think. So the first, which I think we've addressed a little bit, is the, the one you hear from the left, which is mostly just that this isn't big enough. They should have included more drugs. They should have just directly controlled prices rather than have the government negotiate. Um, you know, a desire, I think, on the left for just something more aggressive. So if you have a response to that, I'd love to, love to hear what you think. Well, you know, I think that certainly the idea of uh, phasing something in I, I think, you know, the government's going to learn a lot. It's going to have to do a lot of thinking. I would guess that they will, over time, be modifying their guidance and their procedures as they learn more about how to do this. And so starting off um, with a bunch of clearly high-priced drugs that have been around for a long time and made a lot of money uh, that still, you know, don't have any generic competition with them. That's not a bad place to start. And the thing that I think is so important about 
the Inflation Reduction Act is it gives the government a whole new set of tools to do this with. And I think that setting things up so that uh, you can learn how to use your tools and use them appropriately, I think is a good thing. And, you know, as you see, uh, the Biden administration, their budget this year, proposed extending the number of drugs going forward. Yeah. And so, you know, what that highlights is the fact, okay, we've got some tools in place. We're going to learn something in the first couple of years to do it. And then let's potentially think about, you know, extending those tools as we learn how to use them. That seems like a perfectly reasonable way to proceed. You know, as much as I admire sort of constructive impatience. So uh, so I think that's one thing. I think the, um, the other thing is, uh, I think you do want a negotiation. And I think uh, because more often than not, you'd rather have people walk away from an interaction having shaken hands and knowing that, you know, Nobody really got taken to the cleaners. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the, the balancing act here is you need to have a mechanism in place that keeps everybody at the table, the bargaining table. And that was always a very hard thing to figure out how to do, right? Because, you know, if you can walk away at any point, then the other guy's in a really bad bargaining position. Mm -hmm. And so you need to have something that keeps people at the table for a long time. And the um, Inflation Reduction Act does that through the, an excise tax. And uh, I think that, you know, people can argue about, um, you know, how proper that was, et cetera. But, you know, to some extent, if you didn't do that, you'd never be able to have a bargaining situation where everybody, you know, has a reason to stay at the table. So I think that, um, uh, but I do think that in general, you want to have, uh, you want to have an opportunity so you go back and forth, so you get feedback from the industry, so you learn about how they do business and you let them make their case about why a particular drug is more or less important than another one. And so I think that uh, is an important thing to do. And, uh, you know, if you uh, have seen the recent draft guidance that has come out of um, the Medicare program, you see that they really are trying to set up a process where they actually have conversations with the industry. And so it's not just a, here's my number, take it or leave it, or we're leaving the table. So that's helpful. And, and I, I love the term constructive impatience. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. Um, so the second criticism I've heard, and this tends to be more from the right, from sort of the free market, uh, free market types or from the industry is that this might lead to unintended consequences. So for example, you can imagine that if uh, the inflation, the inflation rebate piece, if, uh, if you tell the manufacturers, well, you're only allowed to raise prices X percent per year. They might say, okay, to make up for that, I'm just going to, when I first introduce a drug, I'm just going to make the price higher because I know that 
future price increases are limited. And and if if they do that, does this actually have the effect that it that's going to be intended? So we'd love to hear you uh, how you think about that. Well, you know, there there's no doubt uh, that one of the possible consequences, or one of the incentives, is to, you know more or less uh, just as you said, is to uh, for new drugs coming on the market. Uh, that are entering a market, for example, where there either isn't much competition or whether there are where a, a new product is a lot better than the existing product, there will be a tendency to be able to raise those prices. I think that's that's true. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, in a sense, you can take that incentive and blow it up and say, ah, see, it neutralizes the whole program. Well, that's in fact not true. If you look at the Congressional Budgets Office, you know, they took that into account and they still estimated very large savings, like billion, you know, billions of dollars every year over 10 and beyond. And so to, to some extent that's true. And you know, sometimes you just can't accomplish everything with one policy. And so you're probably going to see uh, either folks trying to use other tools or um, kind of revisiting this issue uh, later, uh, but it's a it's a difficult issue, and um, you know I think it's going to be one of those areas that evolves. And and the last area, and this is probably the most maybe the most important uh, criticism of the bill, is that, and this is something you hear about drug pricing policy in any context is that if you limit, uh, if, if you control prices too much, pharmaceutical manufacturers simply aren't going to have the incentive to innovate. And the result uh, might be fewer drugs. And, and you know, obviously that's that's bad because if there's a potential future life-saving life drug out there that, that never gets invented because you, you simply eliminated the market incentives for a pharmaceutical manufacturer to create it. Um, obviously, if that's true, that would be bad. So that, that's probably the most common and most concerning argument you hear from both sort of free market conservatives and from manufacturers themselves. So we'd love to hear. And I, I know you've written about this. Uh, so, yeah. about that. so, you know, there is no doubt that you can expect somewhat fewer drugs to be Come, coming to market as a result. However, that's not a useful metric in terms of guiding us in thinking about the impact on American society, right? What we care about is, are we gonna get new cures? Are we gonna get new treatments? And, you know, there have been a lot of dramatic claims made by the industry. I think somebody called it the coming nuclear winter, which is, you know, just, uh, a gross exaggeration. So let's think about the track record here. And let's remind ourselves of a couple of bottom line facts. Uh, fact number one is we're still going to have the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs by a long shot. One. Two, no drug gets touched until they've been on the market for either nine or 13 years. You know, you take Let's take a disease like hepatitis C, which recently uh, was the extreme uh, winner in an R&D sense, which is a cure was developed. 
Well, they made their money back almost instantaneously and then have made huge profits since, uh, even with competition. And then nine years down the road, they all have made money. And that's a small, relatively small disease group. I mean, not tiny, but not not huge, you know, uh, not like arthritis. And so I think that uh, those are some things to bear in mind. But more importantly is the track record. How, what are our current incentives incent? A lot of the money that's spent on R&D is to produce drugs that are small variations on what are out there already. And you know, we did some research where we found that somewhere between 30 and 40% of new drugs launched offer no significant benefits over what's already out there. And about a third of them, 35, 40% offer some meaningful benefits and 20% we're not sure of. So there's a lot of room there to reduce the number of drugs coming to market that don't add much to the public health. And so as far as I can tell, you know, so, so my view is which drugs are we incenting to come on the market? And it seems to me that if you have a really important drug, then you're going to be able to charge a lot of money for a long time for that drug, even if you can't raise it to the degree that you have been able to over, uh, raise the price as you have over the last five years. Uh, but you can still, as you noted, launch it at a very advantageous price and keep it there and keep it even with inflation for the next nine years if you're a small molecule, for the next 13 if you're a biologic. And it seems to me if we're talking about drugs where you're making billions of dollars a year, uh, I, there's still a huge incentive to produce those types of products. So that's really helpful. It, it sounds like part of what you're saying is, sure, there might be fewer drugs, but the drugs that would be coming to market that now won't are probably more likely to be those kinds of drugs that are minor tweaks on existing drugs. They're not that innovative. Uh, they don't offer that much benefit, so they might not they might not be that profitable. There's still there's still always going to be a huge incentive and, and huge profits if you, for example, cure Hep C. That that you know something like that. Um, yeah, is well, still and, incentivized and even more so now. So yeah, and I think the 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 drafters of the legislation were mindful of this by going the nine years going to 13 years, exempting uh, small molecule, I mean, small cell drugs uh, from consideration, putting special orphan drug provisions that exempt them, putting into special provisions to exempt uh, uh, true orphan drugs, and uh, allowing uh, small manufacturers, innovative manufacturers, to phase in over a longer period of time. So they were very mindful of those uh, things. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, the Congressional Budget Office, I thought, did a very even-handed review of this, you know, and they talked about a very small 
a number of drugs over 30 years falling off the table because of this. And, you know, to some extent, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty here, but if I was to sort of uh, pick a number, because I had to, uh, Congressional Budget Office usually does a pretty even-handed job of taking what we know and making a, a reasonable projection. Great, great. All right, so last question I wanted to ask you before we wrap up. Um, what, what, what do you think Congress might look at next on drug pricing? Are there, are there other provisions that maybe didn't make it into the Inflation Reduction Act or other, other areas of prescription drug policy that Congress might look at next? What, what should we expect in the future or hope for in the future? Uh, well, I think a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle have been worried about the way that the patent system is working. So, for example, uh, the, the creation of what are, have become known as patent thickets, where, for example, there's a drug called Humira, uh, which you might know, which sells, you know, like $21 billion a year world worldwide. They have hundreds of patents. And so uh, they can weaponize the patent at the legal system to keep competition off the market. And I think that is of great concern to both Republicans and Democrats. And I think there is some interest in trying to figure out how to address that issue. So I think that's an important one. Uh, I think there are a variety of things that the FDA can do and that or that Congress can authorize the FDA to do to uh, adjust their regulations to promote more generic and biosimilar competition. And so I think, you know, those are potentially still very important tools in the tool chest for keeping uh, drug prices in check. Let's see, I would, uh, and then I would say uh, the so-called balancing act around what are known as accelerated approval drugs. The one, the one that's most um, prominent these days was the Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm that was uh, approved by the FDA under uh, sort of uh, controversial processes and uh, which none of the major payers in this country, including Medicare, want to pay for in an open-ended way because the evidence suggesting that there was any clinical benefit was murky, uh, if not non-existent, and that the um, potential dangerous side effects were, were potentially significant in the form of brain swelling. So, uh, you know, I think those are kind of three basic areas that I think um, have a lot of potential for bipartisan action that could uh, really improve the way we pay for prescription drugs. All right. Well, that's all the questions I have. Uh, is there any anything else you want to want to bring up before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think that we've covered a lot of ground today. Great. Well, awesome. Dr. Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really great conversation. Okay. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.